0: Listening to Women's Waves, a podcast by Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter. My name is Florence Bélapage. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we hand the mic to our friends at the BC Women's Alliance, who propose for International Women's Day 2022, an interview about guaranteed livable income. Welcome
1: to the BC Women's Alliance podcast. The Alliance is a coalition of women's groups in British Columbia. We formed in 2020 and believe the effects of women's oppression on the basis of sex, race and class have been magnified during the pandemic. We fight to overturn the global neoliberal value system and recreate a life-sustaining culture. Our goal is women's freedom. Women's physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual well-being is fundamental to the well-being of all. Our culture has tolerated the enforcement of scarcity, the destruction of fundamental human and natural relations, and male violence against women, including incest, rape, wife-battering, prostitution, and pornography. We believe that a pandemic recovery must include an end to these practices. BC Women's Alliance advocates for a guaranteed livable income to address our losses in this pandemic and provide women with a source of income that enables us to reject oppressive work and family relationships, while ensuring greater freedom in the use of our energy skills and time. Today, we are joined by Evelyn Forget and Hannah Ozar to discuss just that.
2: Hi, thanks so much for having us. Um, My name is Hannah. I'm here to introduce Dr. Evelyn Forget, my co-author. So Dr. Evelyn Forget is an economist in the Reedy Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Manitoba. She is a leading voice on basic income research in the world and is often called upon by governments, First Nations, and international organizations to advise on poverty, inequality, health, and social outcomes. This year, Evelyn was appointed to the Order of Canada for advancing anti-poverty initiatives in Canada and around the world as a leading health economics researcher. She was also appointed a Fellow in the Royal Society of Canada last year.
3: Well, that's uh, wonderful. I'm delighted to be here and I'm very happy to introduce my co-author Hannah Oakshire. Hannah has a degree in human rights and she's a graduate of the Creative Communications Program at Red River College. She's currently working as a writer at the Manitoba Center for Health Policy, where she works on the social determinants of health. She's also a member of the Basic Income Canada Youth Network. So very much a supporter of the concept.
4: So I'm Jacqueline. I'm from the Vancouver Lesbian Collective, and the Vancouver Lesbian Collective is a member of the BC Women's Alliance. And I'd like to start our conversation by appreciating this superb book, "Radical Trust: Basic Income for Complicated Lives," that um, was released. Maybe was it late 2021? Yeah, late 2021, and I had the pleasure of reading just recently. Um, our, co- our collective and our coalition have been interested in guaranteed income for quite some time, and I, some of the superb elements of this book are that it gets right to the core of some of the debates that are animating the fight for basic income, and the book really conveys the human stakes involved. The timing is so useful as a lot of people in Canada are th- and, and around the world are thinking about so-called post-pandemic recovery. And as a lot of people uh, were able to benefit during the pandemic from CERB, and we could also see the criticisms of the various interventions that provinces and the federal government tried, this book um, introduces some of those topics and then makes the connection to the 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 deeper issues and the more profound struggle toward basic income. So I'm so grateful for the book. I really love the tone of this book. I may, I'll just show it for those in the video. I made a hundred notes of must make points to friends and family that I hope read this book. Um, certainly hoping that you succeed and that the book succeeds in getting picked up. As you say in the book, um, It's just a great quote i just love so much where you say learning when it's honest and deep is both transformative and deeply uncomfortable we hope the stories make readers uncomfortable enough to pay attention to policy debates to challenge acquaintances who offer easy opinions about the lives of people they don't understand and solutions to facile problems we don't understand and we hope that the questions in this book challenge us to be honest about how willing we are to share with one another So with that introduction, um, just wanted to say thank you for meeting with us and I'll ask Laurel to start making some connections between these topics and our work in the BC Women's Alliance.
1: Um, I'm Laurel McBride and I'm a collective member with Vancouver Rape Relief and a member of the BC Women's Alliance. So as a coalition that's made up largely of volunteer activists who are fighting for the liberation of women, it was really reinforcing to see how you included these in the arguments for um, how basic income is a step in a much bigger project. Uh, But to back up a bit, how do you define basic income? I
2: I suppose I can start with that. Thanks so much for such a a nice review of the book. I think that when Evelyn and I uh, went about writing this, it was really important to us to put people with lived experience at the forefront of the book. Um, because there are people who understand these systems, they've lived through these systems and they know what's working and what isn't working for them. So it's important for us uh, that they were the experts, and they could tell people like Evelyn and I, like policymakers, like people who make decisions, uh, what it really is like to live within these systems. So um, for me, uh, you know, on the surface level, a basic income is an unconditional cash transfer from government to individuals to in, to enable everyone to meet their basic needs and participate in society. But to me personally, basic income is a human right. um, And I believe everyone deserves to live a life with dignity. It's a common sense alternative to a social welfare system that is full of gaps and problems. Um, And I think that we need better solutions to address poverty. We see all the time how our current social safety net has consistently failed to lift the most vulnerable people out of poverty. um, And this was even more exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, And I think CERV really proved that Canada has the means and, and in time, the political will and financial resources to implement a basic income. Um, And in addition, this isn't a new concept. Canada already has basic income-like programs um, like the Canada Child Benefit, the Old Age Security and the Guaranteed Income Supplement. And these programs have been uh, very successful in uh, reducing poverty uh, for the target audiences um, and have been generally very politically popular. Evelyn, what do you think? What does basic income mean to
3: you? <laughs> I think that I think that's a great answer. I I mean I, I I have a much simpler answer. I mean really I think basic income is about making sure that everyone has enough money to live a life with dignity. It's it it really is about ensuring that people can make their own decisions about how to live their own life um, rather than submitting to the kinds of systems that people like to put in place to ensure that people behave the way we want them to behave. And I think that kind of freedom is something that I, I've grown to appreciate more and more as I work on basic income. Um, when I started working on basic income, I was thinking of this simply as an anti-poverty program, get money into people's hands. And the more you talk to people, the more you realize that a lack of money is a really important thing and it, and it needs to be overcome, but it needs to be overcome in a way that people can live their own lives that other people aren't telling them what it is they should be doing.
4: Yeah, it's such a thrill to hear that evolution of your ideas. Um, Both of our groups have origins in the anti-violence movement. And so battered women and uh, women escaping male violence are often uh, dependent on various social service systems and the constraints imposed on their lives by those social systems are so um, noteworthy which I think your, the book touches on some of those examples and the, this reframing it of as a human right and a freedom to, to choose your own, how to live your own life with dignity is very useful reframing of the topic.
1: Yeah, and Hannah, I was pleased to hear you uh, mention that the preexisting conditions were, have been exacerbated by the pandemic. What do you think about the timing of this this fight now, is it, how is it especially a good idea in the context of recovering from the pandemic?
2: I think I'll let the economists take this question.
3: I <laughs> but, well, I think the pandemic did a couple of things. I think, um, I, you know, a lot of these trends were already underway and they've been underway for a long time. We've seen the changes that are occurring in the economy. And then along comes the pandemic and sucks us for two years. And it's just speeded up a lot of the transitions that are already occurring. You know, Industries that were dying are dying much more quickly and changes are occurring. Economic changes are occurring. So I think the need for basic income became very, very apparent. But one of the things that I was really surprised by and really pleased with during the pandemic was the recognition of how quickly you can respond, how quickly a government can respond when there's political will to do something. I don't think everything they did was right. I mean, I think they made a number of mistakes with the CERB and um, with the policies they put in place, but my goodness, they did something and they did it, what, in a matter of weeks, things that we'd been told would take decades to change. And it's really hard for anybody to stand back now and say, well, yes, this is something we'll do far in the future, but of course we just can't do it now. Well, we did it. So I I mean, I think the pandemic has been um, a real eye opener in all kinds of ways.
2: Yeah, and and to add on to that too, I think something just for everyday Canadians is I think that um, people like to put those living in poverty in a box is that they're responsible for the conditions of their poverty they're responsible for not being able to move through their experiences of poverty. And I think what the pandemic did was show everyday Canadians that really we are all pretty close to living in poverty also with, with a sudden job loss, with costs of living, with all of this going on. So I think maybe it just created a different level of empathy that everyday Canadians who were in a position where they had you know, lost a job and needed social safety nets and needed support, were finding that in fact it is very difficult and these rates are not livable. Um, I just think it may have created a bit more empathy and just an ability for everyday people to be able to to look past their own circumstances and to put themselves in other people's shoes.
3: I hope that's true. I think when we wrote the book, we were hoping that's true. And I really do hope it's true. I I despair sometimes of uh, how imaginative people are and how Mm. much they remember. Um, how how much they remember, for example, how dependent they were on serp when it was available. Um, I I really hope it's true that uh, people are looking around and realizing the circumstances that people are living in.
4: Yeah, I think we all share that sentiment. And one of the challenges for uh, those of us who are political activists is to try to make those radical politics normal. And that's one of the things that was a bit of a favor that we now have this recent shared history.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. You write in the book, I'll I'll share a quote, that basic income cannot address the fundamental challenges posed by race and cultural identity in Canada, but it can offset some of the economic consequences and provide a platform that helps people to pursue opportunities that may have been out of reach. Can you expand a bit on how basic income kind of fits within that bigger vision?
3: gives people space space and time to work on some of the deeper issues. Um, I've heard basic income criticized by some people that it's, it's, it's really um, it's a panacea. It, it's not going to get to the root of the problem. And what we really need to do is to um, come up with deeper changes. And I, I think all those deeper changes are essential. But if people don't have time to work, if they don't have time to join organizations and to contribute to the changes we need to make in society because they're so desperate trying to get food on the table to feed their kids, we're not going to bring those changes about. So I I mean, money isn't everything, but it's a really important thing, especially if you don't have it. And that's where basic income, I think, comes in. It does give people the freedom and the ability um, to contribute um, their, their insights, their wisdom to the way the world should change.
2: I was just gonna add to that and say, putting value on on volunteer work. And I know that the the, both of you are volunteers. I'm a volunteer. Evelyn does a whole ton of volunteer work. And can you imagine if, and and for some people that that is the work they wanna be doing. They just can't be doing it while also raising kids and having to live in expensive cities and whatnot. So it just also um, changes the way that we view volunteer work and puts value on volunteer work. um, And allows people, again, the choice to choose how they wanna spend their time Um, and what they want to do with their lives.
4: Yeah, and volunteerism, most of it is very rich contribution to the community, to the social welfare, to the the common in its broadest sense. Our organizations depend a lot on volunteers, and surely, especially the Rape Crisis Centre, lots of the women who offer themselves as volunteers have always been young women who now are having to cobble together several part-time jobs in order to survive in the big cities of Canada. So we're glad of the CERB example of what might happen if you're not pressed into that position for your survival.
2: And current social safety welfare systems don't um, value that volunteer work in the same way. Um, there was an a, a individual we'd interviewed in the book for the uh, chapter on incarceration um, and he spoke a lot about how much value he gets in volunteer work and working with youth and doing gang prevention uh, work and public speaking and whatnot. But in order for him to collect welfare in Manitoba, he had to be holding down a, a, you know, a, a certain amount of hours in, in, a, in a job in the labor market. And for him, that was challenging, given all of the other circumstances. And just the fact that you know, he was most passionate about the volunteer work, and he put so many hours and time into that. But ultimately, it wasn't uh, considered to be work under uh, under our current
1: systems. Yeah I thought that uh section was quite eloquent in speaking to the value of volunteer work within our communities and how essential it is in yeah enriching the lives of those who who are part of those organizations and who interact with those organizations and how outlandish it is that that's not valued whereas maintaining a a part-time job in one of the uh bullshit jobs, to use the term. Uh, that that's, That is valued. Um, Evelyn, a bit earlier, you, you spoke a bit about how your thinking on basic income evolved. And as it's made clear with the title of the book, Radical Trust, you've stressed that the way forward is with that on both a societal level, as well as a policy level. So the book emphasizes a move away from paternalism and toward enabling greater expressions of autonomy and as feminists this is totally consistent with our fight for women to get a share of the commons and with that the freedoms that flow both the the freedoms to and the freedoms from so could you speak a bit more about what radical trust uh, looks like to you and what the biggest barriers are
3: I think trust is hard for a lot of people. It's uh, certainly hard for me. I, I am the kind of person who believes that I know better than everybody else what it is they ought to be doing with their lives. Um, and I, I think it's really hard to sit back and to see people making what you believe are t- terrible mistakes with their lives, um, making bad choices. On the other hand, they're their choices. And to be able to stand back and say, yeah, okay, um, this is not my call. This is not my life. I think that's a hard thing for people to do on a personal level. But it's a really hard thing for policymakers to do. And if you look at if you look at social assistance across the country, income assistance, virtually any program we have, all of it is designed. And I, I think a lot of the time it's designed by people of very goodwill who want to help people, um, but they want to help people people to live the way they think they should live. And, you know, sometimes, well, I think that's always problematic, but it's particularly problematic um, if you think about it in terms of the history of this country, for example, if you think about indigenous women and the kinds of impositions that we place on the lives that people want to live and how they want to live those lives. So yeah, I I mean I always recognize this, I guess, as a problem. Um, but I think, I think Reaching the states where where one recognizes that trust is really at the heart of all of this, it's at the heart of basic income. That's what holds people back. If you know, people will come up with a thousand reasons why we can't have basic income, we can't afford it, Um, you know, we don't have the machinery in place. I mean, I can think of 15 different reasons people have given me, but at its heart, it's really that we can't control people. If people have money and they can spend it any way they want we have very few levers to control the way they behave and I, th- I think that that's a very frightening thing for um, policymakers and for ordinary people of all kinds to accept.
2: I think that what she's saying is absolutely correct and I think that when we look at um, specifically people accessing uh, social systems or people living on low incomes. They're not held to the same standard as people who are on higher incomes. They're, their lives are judged. They're regulated. So whenever someone goes into a you know, welfare office and, and needs some money, you know they need to go through testing. They need to go through potentially drug testing. They need to determine all of these things about their lives. And people with higher incomes never need to adhere to the same standards. So I think it's It's really about us reframing the way we view people on low income and realizing that people living in poverty know what they need best um, Mm. and it allows them to live a life they choose even if it's not necessarily how you or i may choose to live but we need to trust that people are going to make their own decisions that are best for them
3: i've spent a lot of time in the last couple of years reflecting back on my behavior as a parent and we talked a lot. We've talked a lot um, about the parenting issues that are involved with people who rely on social assistance, for example, and how quickly you can fall into the clutches of, um, of people who want to help your children and want to help you um, and sometimes make decisions that are really devastating for families. And you realize how very privileged you are if you can make those decisions out of, out of, out of the view
0: mm-hmm.
4: out
3: of other people. And you realize you've made so many mistakes in your life and somehow because of the privilege you live in, you've walked free. And I've done that with parenting and in so many parts of my life. And people who rely on social assistance don't have that freedom. There's so much oversight of their lives that mistakes mistakes are devastating in ways that they just aren't for other people. And I think that one of the things that basic income does is, is not only frees people up to make their own decisions, but it it recognizes that you can have second chances, Mm. that you can recover. It allows you the ability to recover that that you just don't have if you're living that close to the line.
4: Yeah, so well said. Um, For anyone who's listening to this and is a bit newer to the conversation about basic income in Canada, the book Radical Trust, Basic Income for Complicated Lives, Um, make some arguments about people being entitled to the money they need to live, but also that there should be be some other social services in place. You're certainly not in this book arguing to vaporize every social service that exists, but you certainly are arguing to remove the surveillance aspect. Certainly, I think you're arguing like we would in the BC Women's Alliance that there needs to be special services for medical care, there, that is not, should not be totally privatized and so on. Is there anything uh, you just want to make sure gets inserted for people in this conversation, for people who are newer to this?
3: I, I think it's really important. To, um, if you think about uh, people living with disabilities, for example, it's really, really important to recognize that so the services that people need to live their lives still need to be in place. Mm-hmm. Money's not a substitute. And I think that's true of many people living in different circumstances. Um, what basic income does is it removes the compulsion. It, um, it allows people to access these services when these services are useful, rather than making access to the basic resources you need to put food on the table and to pay your rent dependent on also submitting yourself to um, to particular programs.
2: Right. I think we would both agree that, you know, absolutely, basic income, as the saying goes, is not a silver bullet. I know it's that because it's so overused, but it really is it's not a silver bullet. And um, we need quality affordable housing, we need universal pharma care, we need childcare, we need healthcare, of course. So I think that, yeah, it must be noted that, of course, the argument we're making in terms of a basic income is not against um, other much needed publicly funded services.
4: Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, we've made that, we share that politic. Um, We mentioned a little bit about the pandemic. And Um, that we hope that the CERB, the the fact that many people could access CERB may have built some empathy that people, lots of us might need uh, basic income. But what we haven't talked about yet, which I think is quite, we hinted at a little bit, but that basic income is good for society, not just for the people who need the money. So maybe you could say a little bit about that, and we can share a little bit about why that's one of our elements in our feminist campaigns
2: i'll let evelyn take that one too i have stuff to add but she can she's the economist she knows these things
4: <laughs> it's great to have the the perspective of the economist because we feminist activists get of course accused of just banging on about un- data unsupported political agenda so it's really grateful to have the economist who can take a
3: we'll see if the other economists agree uh-huh. <laughs> I think I, I think that um I, th- I think that you know basic income does a lot of things it provides money of course to people who need money it's a kind of an insurance policy for all of us even during periods when we don't need access to those resources um but you know I, I think one of the things that we really recognize during the pandemic is how interrelated we really are. If we think about our health, our health really depends on how healthy our neighbors are, how uh-huh. healthy our roommates are, how healthy the people we work with and visit are. And I think the same is true for economic well-being. Um, my economic well-being depends on uh, how, how um, supported my neighbors are, how, what kind of access they have to the resources they need to live their lives. And I think all of it leads to a kind of a richer society. If you can think of some of the different groups of people who would benefit very much from a basic income. I think one of the one of the categories that comes to my mind very often is artists of all kinds. Hmm. Art is so fundamental to the society we live in. And yet it's not something that fits very well into the labor market. Um, you know, people tend not to pay a whole lot of money for um, to support our artists and yet a basic income would allow people to do the kind of work that they think is really contributing that they believe is contributing to society and that other people gain so much from and and it it enriches i think society for all of us um so yeah there are all kinds of ways i think we benefit from ensuring that all of our neighbors have access to the money that they need to live well
2: yeah, I think uh, one of the biggest um, critiques of a basic income obviously is cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that that's an argument that needs to be reframed also because to me we need to look at it as an investment in people we need to look at it as an investment in society and one of the um, the points we're trying to make in the book um, is that by investing in people on the outset to allow everyone to be able to meet their basic needs and live life with dignity will create cost savings in other social sectors so we look at justice we look at health care is a big one obviously um, as well so uh, I think you know there's a there's this there's a quote in the book that talks about the parliamentary budget office um, suggests that uh, implementation of a basic income will cut poverty rates in half uh, without any new taxes or tax increases um, if public services were transitioned into a basic income so I think that um, there's there's resources that we already have that can be better utilized, and, and things that we can do to transition our current social systems into a basic income. And really, we need to be looking at it as an investment because I think we real, will see a return on that investment in other social services.
3: Virtually every province is spending about half of its budget right now on healthcare, and we've built up this huge backlog of um, surgeries that haven't been completed and uh, people waiting for healthcare. But we're using the healthcare system to treat the consequences of poverty. And I think that one of the reasons that we ought to be looking at something like a basic income is is to ensure that the money's better spent. Instead of spending it downstream after people get sick, spend it upstream. Give people the money that they need to live properly, to live well.
4: It seems to me this book, Radical Trust, Basic Income for Complicated Lives, uh, substantiates those claims with reference to the to the data. So it's a very good reference to grab if you want to make those arguments and don't know which reports or which studies because Dr. Forget has dug them up over a career of many decades and she and Hannah have documented them for us all to benefit from. So thanks for that. I found it to be super helpful because most people think that I'm making that up. So I'm glad to have the resources Compiled, the contemporary resources compiled for my use. Thanks.
1: Yeah, I was so pleased to see the affordability uh, aspect that you took that on in the book. Uh, as Jacqueline said, as activists, we're accused of being too pie in the sky, that the things that uh, we're arguing for could never be um, put into practice. So uh, you really getting into the numbers and, and laying out what the things we deem as a society are uh, affordable and those that are not are, is, uh, is not all as it seems. So yeah, I really appreciated you kind of laying out some of those numbers and making such a, a great resource for us all in <laughs> backing that up. But maybe there's other
4: significant criticisms that we, we haven't addressed. We've addressed affordability a little bit. We've not talked too much about people are lazy, which is the other classic. Maybe we're moving a bit away from that in the public debate. I'm not sure what you think about that, but that's a real classic. And then, of course, there's the fact that the right wing advocates for basic income, which is, seems to usually be a way for capitalists to absolve themselves of paying decent wages. Is so there any other perspective on the main criticisms you'd like to make sure folks listening have considered?
3: Andy Stern, um, a labor activist in the US has argued that uh, basic income is like a permanent strike fund that if you give people a basic income um, you're actually strengthening the case for higher wages because people have an alternative. If you really want people to work cheap don't give them any support at all. And uh, they'll work for next to nothing because they have to put food on the table. If people have a basic income, um, it puts a little bit of pressure on employers to improve the terms and conditions they're offering. I don't think it makes basic income unaffordable. And I guess one of the things that, um, that I keep pointing to is the parliamentary budget office. This is not staffed by radicals. This is staffed by ordinary economists sitting in Ottawa who are crunching numbers, crunching statistics Canada data all the time. And the parliamentary budget office um, released reports saying that this is something that Canada can afford without borrowing, without raising taxes inordinately. Um, they also announced that um, the labor uh, market disincentives were negligible, that people, there's no evidence at all that people will quit their jobs, that they'll work fewer hours. So I am, I take that as a I take that as a vote of confidence in the whole concept of basic income.
2: There's been some really great evidence that came out of the pilot project in Ontario in terms of this whole work disincentive argument. Um, we saw a lot of participants open businesses, uh, we saw participants having the opportunity to go back to school to increase their education so that they can come out with better opportunities in the labor market. Um, even in the income experiment that Evelyn, um, that was Evelyn's pioneering research, um, looked at, you know, there was no work disincentives except a young, among young mothers. Um, and young boys who decided to stay in school and graduate rather than, you know, mm-hmm. going home and having to work on the farm. And at that point, there just wasn't an extended maternity leave like we see now. So young mothers had the opportunity to stay home with their kids for longer, which those both those things are very positive in terms of the health of our society. So I think, I hope that the argument of people being lazy and the work disincentive has been put to bed. But I mean, it is a question that we get constantly. But I think at least uh, in terms of recent research, uh, the Ontario pilot had some really, really positive um, counter arguments for that.
4: So It does seem like, from our perspective, that the public debate and understanding on basic income has shifted quite a bit. Seems like we have a good amount of mo- momentum happening now. Um, what would you like to say about where we are in the, in the current move towards success here in Canada? I'm optimistic.
2: <laughs> I'll let Evelyn speak for herself on that. But Um, You know, like, like you had mentioned, there there really has been a renewed um, enthusiasm and support for basic income. So we had a a list of a few people, which I'll name now, which were were new advocates uh, as of the pandemic. So the Pope, (laughs) that was fun. Um, The Steelworkers Union, uh, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, uh, several large religious groups, uh, more than 4000 individual women and women's groups, more than 7000 artists and groups representing artists. So there really is growing support and awareness about this. Um, I think ultimately it really comes down at this point to political will Mm -hmm. um, and I'm optimistic uh, in the advocacy groups that that are out there. So, um, you know, the Canada, uh, the Basic Income Canada Network, Coalition Canada, UBI Works, I'm part of the Basic Income Youth Network and that's been a really exciting thing for us. And so, um, you know, what, what these groups are committed to is continuing to raise the profile politically um, and meeting with uh, political leaders across uh, party lines to really start to um, gain support. So I think it, it does come down to political will. I think that there's been a lot of public support that has come out in favor of a basic income. Um, and then there's, there's some rumblings about a potential pilot project in Prince Edward Island. Um, but of course, there's still challenges. I mean, the Ford government did cancel the Ontario basic income pilot prematurely. So I can't say that it's all you know, rainbows and sunshine, but I am optimistic about the future and, and the progress that we can make uh, nationally on this.
3: I think if I can um, take a slightly longer perspective on that, I think that in recent years, there's been a real mainstreaming of the discussion of basic income. Um, I, I'm gonna come back to the PBO office again. I mean, this is, this is something that would have been inconceivable 10 years ago. And to have um, central government organizations looking seriously at the concept of the basic income is a really very positive thing. And yes, there are all kinds of organizations moving into support. But there's a danger that comes along with that, or at least a challenge, if I can put it that way. Um, as it becomes more mainstreamed, as it becomes something that we can con- conceive of, as, you know, when people can't dismiss this out of hand as something that's just, it's gonna cost billions and billions of dollars. It's just impossible. We can't do it. It also raises opposition. And I think that there's mounting opposition to the concept of basic income. And you should look at my Twitter feed to see what people say to me on occasion about uh, basic income and um, tying basic income to the World Economic Forum to, to concepts of communism and socialism, which seem to be synonyms for anything I don't like about the way the economy is developing or the society is developing. So I think we have, um, I think we still have a strong debate out there. And I think much of it is playing into the hands of a sort of a neoliberal agenda. So I think there's a lot of work to be done to maintain the momentum that we've gained in recent years.
4: That's a great call to action. For those of us wondering what we might do to pragmatically fight the rise of neoliberalism. I'm glad we adopted basic income as one of the campaigns that we continue to str- struggle on. That's an excellent argument, thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you, uh, Hannah and Evelyn. I don't think we can say in any stronger language that we were urge everyone to pick up a copy of Radical Trust, Basic Income for Complicated Lives. And if you can do so from an independent bookseller near you and uh share it widely with everyone you know. That's our uh call to action from this podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks
3: for having us.
1: Yeah.
3: Thank you for inviting us.
0: And this is it for Women's Waves. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more radical feminist content. Women's Waves is produced in Vancouver, Canada by Vancouver Rape Relief and Women's Shelter You can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts Mixcloud and our website What you're hearing is our theme song It's called Sisterhood and it's created by Music Liberatory Every woman needs
4: a sister, every sister needs a, every,
3: sister needs a, every, woman needs a every woman
4: needs a sister, every sister needs a wife.